the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Super Bowl Sunday is upon us. Chiefs or 49ers. Uh, Donald Trump's ad. Uh, we've got Trump's got an ad. Bloomberg's got an ad. Two billionaires with competing ads. And uh, here's Trump's offering. This way you can, you know, get up and get a cold one. America demanded change. Donald Trump wins the presidency. And change is what we got. Under President Trump, America is stronger, safer, and more prosperous than ever before. Best wage growth I think we've seen in almost a decade. Unemployment rate sinking to a 49-year low. Unemployment for African Americans that fell to a new low. Unemployment for Hispanics hit an all-time record low. And ladies and gentlemen, the best is yet to come. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. Needs a little uh, Tina Turner music, musical uh, bed there. Uh, and Michael Bloomberg went a different direction, not an unsurprising one, more sentimental direction, consistent with one of the issues that he's picked up on and spent a lot of money uh, supporting throughout the country, and that's gun control. Uh, it's an interesting choice for somebody who is skipping the early states and focusing on blasting the airwaves all the way to Super Tuesday, where he hopes to make a mark and reorder the race. George started playing football when he was four years old. He would wake up every Saturday ready for the game. That became our life. He had aspirations about going to the NFL. On a Friday morning, George was shot. George didn't survive. I just kept saying, you cannot tell me that the child that I gave birth to is no longer here. Lives are being lost every day. It is a national crisis. I heard Mike Bloomberg speak. He's been in this fight for so long, he heard mothers crying, so he started fighting. When I heard Mike was stepping into the ring, I thought, now we have a dog in the fight. I know Mike is not afraid of the gun lobby. They're scared of him, and they should be. Mike's fighting for every child, because you have a right to live. No one has a right to take your hopes and dreams. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message. Well, it's a poignant story, but but it's an interesting choice to pick that issue on that stage, the Super Bowl, um, to make that your brand. Uh, It's clearly a play for the urban denizen and to some extent the suburban voter that's concerned about the urban denizen. But is Mike Bloomberg the right messenger for that message? Is that top, you know, top of the issue matrix for enough voters for him to move up in the polls? I, I don't know. It's a curious choice for me, but that's. Also, where he has spent a lot of time and money and raised his profile with respect to public policy. So, um, I I mean, I I don't know. I think I would go more towards uh, managing New York City and that being a credential, thinking about economic opportunities and closing the inequality gap and 
that, that sort of rhetoric from the left. But for more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, special report, 5 p.m. weekday Chicago time. The book, Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. Brett, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Good morning. Morning. So um, before we get to impeachment, let's talk a little bit 2020 with Iowa caucus on Monday and, and, and start with Bloomberg since he's going to make a big splash on Sunday with that ad. You know, what, what is exactly the thinking there? He, he wants to make his candidacy sort of a, a refer and, and, and the primary a referendum on gun control. No, I think he's trying to reach out to uh, progressives uh, who, and that's an issue that he can speak to that reaches kind of across the democratic void of moderate to progressive. Uh, And it's an issue, the ad's obviously emotional. Um, It's an African-American woman talking about it. He's, um, you know, it's a suburban uh, kind of mom issue. And he thinks he can have headway there. He has a history there. So he's definitely going to have ads about running New York and about being a businessman. But his main thing is to be able to reach out to the disaffected Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, you know, Pete Buttigieg voter. The the deal is, is that if Sanders wins Iowa, which is very likely, I think his rallies and seeing it on the ground, it's, there's momentum there. If he wins, he very well could win New Hampshire. Yeah. And then you would have Sanders winning the first two, a limping Biden goes into South Carolina, and the party is, you know, on red alert and searching for, you know, somebody like Mike. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, right. And and look at where Bernie is. He's lapping the field right now in California. He could potentially sweep the delegates there, particularly if he continues this uh, uptick in momentum. So, no, I think you're right, and this is why you had Obama world and Clinton world uh, sort of sounding the alarm a couple of weeks ago in op-ed form and on the cable news talkies and so forth. But I, I just the, the Bloomberg thing as the stopgap if Biden falters, it, it's just interesting to me because, I mean, uh, Cory Booker tried that. Bobby O'Rourke tried that, uh, the gun issue specifically, with that sort of same approach. This is the way I'm going to middle some of these other candidates and 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 broaden my appeal to not just um, African-American voters, but suburbanites who are concerned about uh, African-American families in the inner cities. And, and it didn't work. And I would suggest that Booker and even to a lesser extent, Bobby had more on the ground credibility than billionaire Bloomberg. Yeah, besides the dollars, I mean, he's put a lot of money behind the the issue. I yeah. mean, between that and climate change, I mean, he's he's put his money where his mouth is on on backing not only organizations that stand up for those things and help what he thinks, but also candidates. I mean, he spread so much money to congressional races and Democratic bigwigs that if it does go to a contested convention. There's a lot of people that owe him a lot. So uh, the uh, impeachment trial uh, ends uh, tonight or uh, in the wee hours on Saturday morning, depending on uh, Democrats' uh, pension to uh, to uh, proffer amendments to a motion to vote that uh, will be rejected. There's a little uh, procedural question mark, and that is what Schumer does as far as uh, Republicans have the votes um, on the no witnesses. So then it becomes like when this whole thing started about the rules. Remember, Schumer tried to get a number of amendments, and it took a while to put them down. Um, that could happen again. And there's also some word that 
senators on both sides want to speechify, which is what senators want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is possible, possible that they have the vote tonight on the witnesses, and then they start tomorrow with a series of speeches that takes them even past the State of the Union, and acquittal doesn't come till Wednesday. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be fun? That, that's a, you're just giving Trump more material for Tuesday night, aren't you? If you do that, yeah, I mean, I would think so. But that's that's one of the scenarios. The other one is that they stay until two in the morning tonight, and they they just get so tired they vote to acquit. Um, now, uh, Trump may be out of the woods shortly, but uh, it's clear that Biden won't be. Not just because Lindsey Graham said he's waiting for the trial to conclude, and then he's interested in some oversight activities on Biden and Burisma, but just because of the Schweitzer book and because of the campaign. Uh, and as particularly as the field winnows, you're going to have a lot of incentive if you're uh, a Bernie uh, or some other t- tier one candidate to start raising some of these issues about Biden and Burisma now that we're clear of impeachment and it's safe to do so. I don't know if it's going to come within the party. I, I think Bernie is a little reticent to do that. But there are plenty of people on the Republican side who will do it for him. And mm-hmm. um, and I, I think you're right. I, I don't think that investigation stops. But I also don't think that Democrats stop on their efforts against the president. And, um, you know, the book, the Bolton book, he'll get called up to Capitol Hill some way, shape or form, or the book will be, you know, dissected. You've got the decision in court about Don McGahn, the White House chief of staff. He's probably going to have to come up to Capitol Hill. So it's going to be a slow burn uh, for Democrats against the president. And, you know, don't be surprised if if there's another effort at impeachment, believe it or not. One other note on, on the uh, 2020 election, just, a, you know, a snapshot in time, but Associated Press polling that finds uh, real anxiety among Democrats and real enthusiasm among Republicans. And as we know, intensity matters, enthusiasm matters. But 66 uh, percent of Democrats report anxiety about the uh, election to 46 Republicans. 43 percent of Republicans say they're excited about the election to 33 percent. Now, again, that may change with a, a nominee or it may not. I think there's real anxiety about who the nominee is going to be. And um, if, you know, the possibility of being the nominee, it would cause some anxiousness among the Democratic Party overall. I also think the other poll that's worth looking at, if you just take a look at it, is the new Gallup poll on on issues. Yeah how you feel about the U.S. economy, about race relations, about all kinds of things. The positive effect from 2017 to 2020, January, is truly amazing, like up 26 points in the economy, up 14 points in race relations. This is under President Trump. So uh, all those things would make Democrats anxious, too. He is Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, special report, 5 p.m. weekdays in Chicago, and the book. Three days at the brink. FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. Brett, thanks for joining us. Enjoy the Super Bowl. All right, have a good weekend. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. And before President Trump shuffled off to his uh, rally of faithful in Des Moines last evening, he uh, stopped for an interview with Fox News, talk a little bit about uh, 
impeachment, of course, but also about the coronavirus and what he's doing, particularly against accusations from the likes of Elizabeth Warren that he's not doing enough. Well, what I'm doing is we're dealing very closely with China. We'll be making certain announcements over the next 24 hours and 48 hours. And uh, we are in great shape. China's not in great shape right now, unfortunately. But uh, they're working very hard. We'll see what happens. But uh, we're working very closely with China and other countries. And, of course, it was announced yesterday the State Department is increasing uh, its uh, advisory uh, for Americans uh, to China to... Do not travel. That's its advisory. Don't do it. Don't go to China. Uh, WHO, World Health Organization, declaring an emo- uh, a global emergency over the virus as the number of reported cases now tops 8,000, the number of deaths related to the virus, more than 200. And uh, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross was asked about the economic impact, as Larry Kudlow was the day before. And and I th- Wilbur Ross's comments, I think, are being purposely um, mischaracterized. What else is new? The same way Dershowitz's were earlier in the week in the well of the Senate talking impeachment, uh, not discounting the human cost. But he's asked a question about the economic impact. And uh, here's what Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross had to say. I don't want to talk about a victory lap over a very unfortunate, very malignant disease. But the fact is, it does give businesses yet another thing to consider when they go through their review of their supply chain. It's another risk factor that people need to take into account. So I think it will help to accelerate the return of jobs to North America, some to U.S., probably some to Mexico as well. Yeah, and all he's saying is he's not being insensitive to human suffering or the spread of the virus, which is now there are reported cases in every province of China as more U.S. companies are shutting down their offices for now, Google and Starbucks. You've got uh, American Airlines pilots uh, suing uh, to stop American Airlines flights from going to China. There's more flights being canceled, more carriers canceling their flights in and out of China. Um, but what what uh, Ross is legitimately pointing to is the way business people make decisions about supply chain and uh, how businesses make decisions about location. And part of that calculation is healthcare infrastructure. You know, that just in the competitive environment uh, between states in this country, uh, quality of your local health care infrastructure is a selling point to attract capital and to attract uh, business location. So I think that's that's all he's speaking to. And frankly, this is a message. It's a message about a, a centrally planned response to the virus and how, uh, frankly, uh, ineffective it's been. How slow was the reaction? You know, big centrally planned organizations move like a battleship. It takes a long time for them to turn. Private sector moves like a speedboat. It can jump around all over the place. And frankly, our private sector is uh, working to help the Chinese communists deal with uh, the uh, spread of the virus. This is worth knowing, not just uh, through government, but again, our private sector, big pharma a uh, favorite whipping boy of politicians in both parties, as the Wall Street Journal reported. Uh, AbbVie, Johnson & Johnson, shipping HIV treatments to China, while Gilead is studying whether an experimental antiviral drug that has worked on other coronaviruses in animal trials could help. Merck is also reviewing research to see if any of its drug compounds can be repurposed. 
And uh, they make the point. All of this is worth pointing out as politicians on both sides of the aisle denounce drug makers as parasites on society. This is not to say pharma is without its challenges or legitimate criticisms. But um, there's this aspect of uh, being the world's leader in innovation when it comes to medicine and medical technology as the United States is something we should guard jealously and rather than destroy through government takeovers as proposed by your Elizabeth Warrens and your Bernie Sanders and your Democrat socialists of the world. Also, this it took 20 it took scientists 20 months to develop a SARS vaccine to test on humans. But uh, the NIH, our National Institute for Health, hopes to have a vaccine ready for human trials by as soon as April. Uh, the Wall Street Journal observing while tens of thousands more may get sick in the meantime, you have the U.S. drug makers uh, doing the best they can while our top researchers move as quickly as they can to develop a not only diagnostic test that can be more widely distributed, but a vaccine that can be widely distributed, too, per those test results. Uh, one other thing about the Chinese economy and how it's changed, there was a good piece in the L.A. Times uh, comparing the uh, potential economic impact this time around for China versus 2003 with the SARS epidemic. Uh, back in 2003, consumer spending only accounted for one-fifth of China's growth, much more reliant on factory workers churning out goods for the outside world. Today, today, while many exporters who had factories in China have fled for cheaper pastures in Southeast Asia, about one-third of China's economic expansion is powered by consumer spending at home. So it's a sign of how the Chinese economy has developed. But when you have uh, uh, businesses shut down and people shutting down and uh, this uh, trying to quell the epidemic that, uh, that, that this pandemic on the ground in China, that has a much more immediate and potentially long lasting impact on the Chinese economy. Now, back here, it's a bit of a different story. Uh, the. Uh, Editorial board at USA Today, I think, has a good proportional response to the threat. We don't need to necessarily be running around with plastic bottles on our heads in this country quite yet. At this point, the coronavirus looks a bit like sharks, snakes, terrorist attacks, and other things that provoke disproportionate amounts of fear. While uncertainty about how the virus spreads is concerning, the rate at which it spreads does not look out of the ordinary. And uh, they cite a uh, Harvard University doctor that says it's somewhere in the range of uh, of SARS and well below that of measles. Um, the um, uh, the point they make at given recent advances in medicine that have brought about longer lifespans and relatively few ec- epidemics, it's it's easy to be complacent. Um, but um, with uh, all that I was describing before uh, and uh, uh the mobility of humans, you know, that there are going to be these challenges that uh, the medical community and uh, government and uh, private sector operators uh, are confronted with, like SARS almost 20 years ago and coronavirus today. One other point, too, as you know, the president has put together a task force on the coronavirus. And uh, only CNN could have put its finger on the real crux of the issue. You know what the real issue is with this task force, this coronavirus task force? The, the quality of the personnel, how quickly they're coming together and assessing all the options and distributing relevant information. No, no. 
the diversity. Yeah. The diversity is what is problematic to CNN. CNN's uh, Brandon Tensley contrasting the diversity of President Trump's coronavirus task force to the diversity of President Obama's Ebola task force from uh, six years ago. I mean, it's just remarkable, isn't it? Way to keep your eye on the prize, CNN, as per usual. This is the Dan Prop Show. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Remember this? I, I, no, Run DMC instrumental in my childhood and we're pleased to be joined by the legendary rev run and his wife justine simmons they got a new book old school love and why it works rev and justine thanks so much for joining us a real treat appreciate it thank you for having us give us uh, your advice and counsel on a lasting marriage a lasting love old school love well a lasting marriage is really about give and take you can't just be the taker you have to be the giver and the taker. So it has to be two to tango, you know, and then there's a, there's a principle that I always talk about. Listen to the whispers so you don't have to hear the screams. And that means, mm. you know, if, if she's starting to tell you she doesn't like something, don't let it get to a point where she's now screaming at you that she doesn't like what you're doing. And, and also there's another principle that I love to talk about, and that is communication. If you're not communicating with your partner, because they say, you know what, it's not so much, you know, like, oh, I'm in love with you, I look in your eyes. It's not looking in the eyes, it's looking in the same direction that keeps the marriage. You want to be on the same page as your mate. Because if you're not on the same page, the Bible says, how can two walk together unless they agree? So, you know, it's not about looking in each other's eyes so much, it's about looking in the same direction. So when you see red flags, if you're single and you're looking, you know that's you know that's not your partner. If you got the one that if she's irking you, getting under your skin, if you're dating somebody that you don't like and you can feel that it's not going to work, don't ignore red flags. So even though you've had this, Rev, even though you've had this storied career, I know in the book you talk about low points as well, and and so so you know tell us about getting the both of you getting through low points in the marriage, even with somebody that's you know otherwise very successful, and so. You know, finances isn't so yeah, much lost, the issue, but other things lost, are. We lost a baby within um, our marriage. He carried full term, and then the baby was lost right away, and it was very painful. But what we learned was that you can adopt. So immediately, she had asked me to adopt early on. I said, no, let's just have our own baby. And I realized you don't have babies. God gives you babies. But I, I guess, uh, pompously thought I could just have a baby anytime I want because I had so many and God was kind of shut me down. So I went back to her original idea. Let's just adopt. So the adoption option helped us. It took away her pain and it took away our pain. And what I found out about adopting is once you get that baby, that, that, that adopted uh, person, they, it's the same thing. You would think you need it to be blood, but you don't need it to be your blood in order to be deeply in love and deeply um, fulfilled by having a child that is not yours. And I, I, trust me, I didn't think so. And she was saying, I'm like, that's weird. 
you want me to take a baby from somewhere else? But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you do not know the difference between my Diggy, who I through came through me, and Miley, who was adopted. I don't know the difference of love. Well, as somebody who was adopted, uh, I really appreciate that message. Um, yeah, I, I, I think my parents would. Well, I don't know if my parents would agree with you or not about that. I'll have to ask them, but I, I, I think they would. <laughs> Um, you know, it, I, I want to uh, think uh, to talk about role models. You know, you, you, I'm sure you had role models in music. What about role models for relationships? Yeah, we had role models in our church. The actual bishop of the church had a wonderful marriage for many, many years. They, they, they had beautiful kids, and we went to church. You know, that's how I became the Rev. I was going to church three days a week, and I was fascinated by their relationship. They had teachings on marriage on Mondays, so we went to these classes. And it was just so much mentorship that it, it gave us the foundation of how to operate and make our marriage work. So it's, mentorship is important. Yes. And all this happened after um, his high point, so to speak, in Run DMC. And that became his low point. Your high was my low, yeah, because I was, you know, you get gluttonous. Like, I want more hit records. I want more fans screaming. And then all of a sudden, it dawned on me that I was empty because I had it all, as one would think, but I didn't have God in my corner the way I needed it. It was, it was a little off. So that's when I went to church and I started finding God and making him the center of my life is when things began to turn around and my life shaped up and got more beautiful. In and, that's, and that's when we got together towards that time, even though we got together when we were younger. And we split for, and we split for a long time. time. It's and all it, in the book. Know, yeah, I don't want to give it all away. So 12 years later, we got back together, and I was in church, and I brought her with me, and we broke, this, this marriage's foundation was made at church. And the book is called Old School Love. In a sentence or two, what is old school love? How do you define it? Oh, old school love. Old school love is old school principles. Rev Run and Justine Simmons, the book Old School Love and Why It Works. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, a couple of years ago, borrowing on an approach to exposing absurdity and intellectual crack pottery. Uh, like Alan Sokol did a couple of generations earlier. Three uh, academics, Peter Bergosian, Helen Pluckrose, and uh, James Lindsay, carried out uh, a bit of a hoax on all of these grievance study journals that all of these grievance studies professors are published in. And uh, we've spoken with Peter Bergosian a number of times on our show. But uh, it was remarkable what got published. I mean, it wasn't like they tried to couch it in the parlance. Well, they tried to couch it in um, sort of heady academic lingo that would uh, pass a laugh test. There were uh, papers they submitted for publication, which got published on topics like rape culture at dog parks. 
and they reprinted a portion of Mein Kampf and submitted that to an academic journal, and it got published. So uh, showing the folly and the lack of academic integrity of not only the journals, but the underlying departments in so many universities. And so it's a pleasure to be joined by one of the uh, three musketeers in this project, James Lindsay, author of Dot, 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 Infinity Plus God Equals Folly. I've got to work that math. And everybody is wrong about God. James Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, I know there was some fallout for uh, Peter Bargosian at his uh, University of Employ. Um, he was put through, uh, <laughs> ironically, the irony lost on the very people he wa- he and, and you and your other colleague were exposing. He was put through sort of a star chamber trial for academic dishonesty. He was the one being accused of academic dishonesty by exposing academic dishonesty. Did, did anything happen to you in terms of uh, professional repercussions? No, I'm outside of the university system, so I didn't have any problems of that kind. Uh, it's really funny you mentioned with Peter, though, because he was charged with three things with academic dishonesty, and one of them was plagiarizing Mein Kampf, as you mentioned a minute ago, and he pled guilty to that one, and once he did, they dropped the charge. <laughs> you guys have these people spinning. It's really something. Um, I, I wanted, if you could, there was a great uh, distillation I saw online, and it uh, prompted us to reach out to you. A short course in social justice. Now, this is available at your Twitter feed, but I want it memorialized uh, verbally as well. Give us the, the short course of in social justice, how the thinking works, so people get an understanding of the mentality. And uh, it's simple. Two plus three equals six. We know it doesn't. And this is where the uh, hijinks ensue. Yeah, I, I laid out an analogy. I've had a lot of difficulty communicating the, the way that the social justice movement thinks, which is ultimately what's called critical methods. So I laid out this analogy. I said, if, you, if you've ever made a math mistake, like two plus three equals six, we all know that two times three equals six. So maybe you just got confused and you did the wrong operation really quickly and whoops. And so you made a mistake. You can relate to this and, and you'll understand it. So imagine you made a mistake like that, just a little calculation mistake on your taxes. Now we know you just made a mistake in reality in that you don't harbor false beliefs about math or, or believe that math doesn't really mean anything or something. You just made a mistake. But if the social justice critical mindset were in charge of the IRS, when they saw that mistake, they would not interpret it simply as a mistake, but they would, I mean, this is no exaggeration. They would see it as you being participated, a participant in a organized crime cabal that basically everybody's a part of that tries to avoid paying their taxes correctly. And so they wouldn't just want to bill you for the amount that you owe because you got your taxes wrong. Instead, they would use that as proof that you're a participant in an organized crime syndicate, that you're trying to be a tax evader. And when you try to say, no, no, I just made a mistake, they'd say, well, that's what a tax evader would say to stay out of trouble. So it just proves that you actually are a tax evader. And it sounds like I'm making that up, but these these concepts come straight out of their literature. Uh, and the, the the thing I put on online, I actually said um, it, it'll it'll gang press every possible response or outcome you give into being some kind of proof of their foregone conclusion that you're a tax evader. Are you nervous about being audited? Well, that's proof of your criminal fragility, which is further proof of your guilt. If you insist that you're innocent, that's criminal rage. If you're innocent until proven guilty, if you claim that that's the case, that you'd, they would call that criminal innocence. And it, it turns out that if you actually, so these words, criminal fragility, criminal rage, criminal innocence are made up, but if you replace the word criminal with white, white fragility, white rage, 
white innocence. Those are three concepts that are actually in the social justice literature that get used in exactly that context. Um, I just changed the word white to criminal. And the belief is that the criminal enterprise is systemic racism. So racism is a system. We all participate in it. There's no way to get out of it. It disproportionately benefits white people. Therefore, we're all complicit. They call it white complicity, by the way. The only way that you can deal with this is to admit that you're racist, accept that, and then do what they call anti-racism work, which is to constantly, they call it an ongoing and lifelong process of self-reflection and activism against racism. So in other words, you have to become somebody who interrogates yourself all the time, beats yourself up for how you might have been involved in something that's racist, even if you've never done anything racist or had a racist thought in your life. You're just complicit in it. And then you have to become a social justice activist. And then you have to employ, uh, retain all the implicit bias instructors, the little cottage industries they create to come in and uh, deprogram you by programming you. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, too, because I just hit an article yesterday I put on my Twitter also. Somebody had written for uh, Education Magazine Online. I think the, the headline runs something like, diversity and inclusion and equity isn't aren't just feel-good buzzwords in an important movement they're also a very profitable industry and in fact it's a bit industry running something like eight plus ten plus billion dollars in the u.s right now every year producing nothing but people who complain about stuff then the guy of course further down the article says by the way i'm a consultant and i have a program for this if you'd like to buy it and it's, it's so almost transparent at this point it's shocking that they do this but um, school systems across the United States in particular are taking this up like crazy. I'm in close contact with people in both New York State and especially New York City who are telling me just how deeply it's being ingrained into and, and woven into the educational program there. And then in the state of Washington, uh, they actually had a recent a bill passing through their state legislature creating an ethnic studies course that even, for example, positions mathematics as something that needs to be done in a collectivist manner and that, that reflects the values of social justice ahead of other values um, includes, you know, questions like we shouldn't believe that there's just one right answer in math. And so how can we bring our stories to bear on what math means? And how can we make math more collectivist instead of individual? When we come back, I want to ask what the effect of the academic fraud you exposed has been. We'll have more with James Lindsay right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. with James Lindsay, author of Everybody is Wrong About God, and we're talking about academic fraud, and I wanted to get to the results. So maybe, maybe in Washington State someday in the not-too-distant future, two plus three will, in fact, equal six. Yeah, if they, uh, <laughs> that's kind of almost where it's going. They've recently created and installed, it passed the Senate the other day, the state Senate, a equity task force that says that the goal is to create a, a commission at the state level, an administrative commission that um, is to last at least 50 years. And they say things like equity equals disrupt plus dismantle. In other words, they want to tear apart the system and rebuild it from the ground up with their own vision. And they say things like 
it's uh, white supremacy includes ideas. And I mean, this is real. It's not, I, I put that on my Twitter too. White supremacy includes ideas like creating a meeting agenda, showing up on time, getting things done, mm-hmm. creating bullet lists and checking things off. And I mean, these are what, if that's what they think white supremacy is, no wonder they think we're all participating in white supremacy. I, I find but, it, int- I find it how, uh, off, uh, remarkable how often in this, these sorts of discussions you have to say, and this is real as a pre-qualifier for what you're about to say next. And it speaks to how far down the rabbit hole we are. And, and my question, I guess, is two years removed from this little uh, experiment that you and your colleagues went on exposing some of the intellectual flimflamery of these sorts of uh, academics. Has there been any repercussions for them? Has there been any recriminations on their side of, of the uh, divide here? Not at a professional level. Uh, what I am seeing is uh, there is a kind of down on the down low quiet movement among academics who are now um, trying to distance themselves from that literature and trying to distinguish themselves. So it definitely put a pretty heavy black mark on the quality of that literature. What I'm actually seeing most importantly, though, is that in these two years or so that have passed is that the the grassroots level whether it's because of the work that we did or the work that, that we're doing now, or whether it's because of lots of other forces, like they keep showing their hand that they are blatantly authoritarian, the, the grassroots level, the movement's starting to fall apart. People are turning away from it. But the problem is that at the institutional level, they are having massive success and in institutionalizing more deeply everywhere, like I said, even at the level of state governments. So... I think the reason for this actually is that people are waking up to it slowly and they're horrified, but they aren't showing up to the meetings yet to complain and vote it out. Mm, mm, Very interesting. James Lindsay, author of dot, 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 infinity plus God equals folly. And everybody is wrong about God. James Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Take care. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Again, follow us, danproftshow.com, on Twitter, danproft.com. Show or at Dan Prof, either one works. Do both. Why not? I tweet different things on different accounts. Uh, and uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren trying to uh, revitalize her flagging campaign, uh, leverage that Des Moines Register endorsement she got uh, before Monday's Iowa caucus, has got all kinds of uh, new and interesting things to say about uh, what an Elizabeth Warren presidency would look like. Earlier this week, she proposed criminalizing disinformation Uh, if anybody spreads uh, misinformation about uh, voting, they should be subjected to civil and criminal penalties. Uh, What 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 constitutes misinformation? 
Elizabeth Warren will let you know. Uh, and, and then there is this moment, and boy, this is a moment. Elizabeth Warren at a town hall, one of her town halls in Iowa, talking about uh, how she will choose her secretary of education were she elected president. Over and over, for my secretary of education, the first, it has to be someone who's taught in a public school. Hello? And part two, because it came from a young trans person who asked about a welcoming community, and I said it starts with a secretary of education who has a lot to do with where we spend our money, with what gets advanced in our public schools, with what the standards are. And I said, I'm going to have a secretary of education that this young trans person interviews on my behalf. And only if this person believes that our secretary or secretary of education nominee is who is committed to creating a welcoming environment, a safe environment, and a full educational curriculum for everyone, will that person actually be advanced to be Secretary of Education? So um, she's referring to a nine-year-old, quote-unquote, trans child that will, uh, I guess, you'll, the, her Secretary of Education, I mean, you'll have to pass muster there before passing muster in the Senate. I mean, is this remarkable? If you think that's remarkable, then you should read the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from Sheila Baer, the former chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, incredibly. The Republican case for Elizabeth Warren. This is in the Wall Street Journal, not the Babylon Bee. I'm a Republican. I've known and worked with Ms. Warren for many years. She is a capitalist and a prairie populist in the tradition of William Allen White and Teddy Roosevelt. She believes in a market economy. She just wants it to work for everyone. Ms. Warren's greatest strengths, according to Ms. Baer, her integrity. <laughs> this is a woman who lied about being fired from a public school for being pregnant, lied about sending her son to public schools, lied, obviously, about her heritage. Good grief. Alternate dimension. For more on Elizabeth Warren's candidacy, we're pleased to be joined by David Banson, managing partner of a wealth management firm, a trustee for the National Review Institute, author of the book Crisis of Responsibility, Our Culture, A Cultural Addiction to Blame and How You Can Cure It, and now the new book on the aforesaid Elizabeth Warren, How Her Presidency Would Destroy the Middle Class in the American Dream. Boy, that uh, should probably be the size of war and peace, I would suspect. David Banson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's good to be with you. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, um, where to begin? The Republican case for Elizabeth Warren, I guess. I'll start on the economics. Uh, you, according to Sheila Baer, uh, she is a, a true uh, market-oriented person. And an example of, of this is she co-sponsored a law with Senator Chuck Grassley to allow hearing aids to be sold over the counter. I rest my case. Yeah, Sheila. Sheila's article is really stunningly bad. Um, at no apparent benefit to, to Sheila Bear, what she was trying to accomplish with it, it wasn't any principle. It wasn't any sort of academic integrity. She has to know what she was saying is utterly preposterous. And I think that um, this is what happens when you have these strange alliances and and, and uh, united forces sometimes in politics as very strange bedfellows. But it was an atrocious article that misrepresents Warren's 
explicit platform. You, uh, guys like you and me that would say Elizabeth Warren is not a capitalist, we don't mean it pejoratively, okay? There is often inflammatory rhetoric that goes around in the whole economic critique world. That's not the case here with Warren. Using her own words, describing her own policies, as a person who's formed an economic policy portfolio out of class warfare, out of class envy, and Sheila Bear knows it. Well, and I mean, here's here's one of the tests of are you a capitalist or not? Do you support a 60% capital gains tax rate? Uh, no, because you want more capital formation and business creation, and that's exactly what, in part, Elizabeth Warren has proposed. I mean, it's just, it's uh, it's a head-scratcher. Yes, and, and, and it's interesting how much of the campaign is centered around the wealth tax, and and the large spending initiatives that go around with it. And as is typical of us Republicans, I understand it, but we've kind of focused most of our scorn and derision on the price tag of her policies, the the just utopian fantasies that are Green New Deal, Medicare for All, student loan forgiveness, and so forth. However, there's been very little press about the rest of her tax policy, all of which is laid out in white papers on her website. Um, so the, the wealth tax is an abomination. I have an entire chapter in the book devoted to the various categories of wrongness with it, starting with what Larry Summers and other leftist economists acknowledge is the fact that it just plain doesn't raise any revenue. But even apart from that, the uh, unconstitutionality of it, the unfeasibility of collection, and, of course, the, the uh, immorality of it. But you brought up the capital gain tax. No one brings up the subchapter S corporations she wants to get rid of, the 14.8% additional payroll tax for family-owned businesses, small businesses. Um, we're just talking about $250,000 of profits to a business that gets subject to a 14.8% additional payroll tax on top of the payroll tax they pay on their first $137,000 of income. These things are buried in her policy portfolio, but she is not ashamed of them, and, and yet we, I don't think we're criticizing uh, holistically enough what she wants to do. Now let's skip over, and because this, of course, is all interrelated, you know, the energy that powers our economy, the energy sector that powers our economy. And on day one, Elizabeth Warren uh, would uh, sign an executive order banning fracking, she says, uh, apparently not a fan of an uh, America that's energy independent. Right, and this is one that is actually a big head scratcher, not not from the, the policy side of it, you know, environmentally and economically. I have a pretty low bar for, for Senator Warren, um, but, but just politically speaking, you would think that in an overly consultant-driven uh, campaign like she has, somebody would have told her, hey, uh, those Western Pennsylvania votes are not going to take well to you. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but yes, it is, it is in, in three major categories, utter insanity, and I want to start with the category that they tell me they care about, and that's environmental. I don't need to get into the subject of what we think is true and not true about climate change and who we think does cause it and not cause it. I'm only using their assumptions, which I'm very happy to do, that there is man-made climate change that they want to remedy through a reduction of carbon emissions. Okay, so do you want to get rid of natural gas production that has been the single biggest force in reducing carbon emissions for the last 10 years? 
You want OPEC and Saudi oil to replace American oil? You want Russian gas to replace? It, she, it isn't like she's coming in saying, I want a pro-nuclear platform, which, of course, is extremely clean feel. I mean, I, I could understand that. She's starting off anti-nuclear, then starting off anti-fossil. And rather than say, so therefore we need to use natural gas until we can have better solar and wind, which a lot of leftists have said for years, she says, I'm getting rid of fracking on day one. Well, do you think she wants people to starve to death and freeze to death? I don't. So what is it exactly she's proposing that middle America do to warm their homes? Hmm. It's completely insane environmentally unless she was actually talking about going back to dirty coal. So I, I, I'm mystified as to where this comes from. And then I think economically, the jobs it would destroy, I make the point in the book um, that the Obama administration had negative job growth over his eight years in office if it were not for fracking. The direct and indirect jobs created out of America's energy renaissance was over 100% of the jobs created in that period of time. Uh, blue collar, middle class, good jobs. So. The Warren Fracking Initiative is right at the top of her highlight reel. He is David Banson, managing partner of wealth management firm, trustee of the National Review Institute, and the book, Elizabeth Warren, How Her Presidency Would Destroy the Middle Class and the American Dream. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Come on. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We were just talking about uh, the prospects for Elizabeth Warren's candidacy against the backdrop of Monday's Iowa caucus. Uh, now we turn our attention to uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, who, as uh, we discussed with uh, Brett Baer earlier in the show, has a, uh, a high-profile commercial to play during the Super Bowl on one of his signature issues, gun control. But as uh, uh, Joel Kotkin writes in Daily Beast, if uh, you think uh, Trump is a danger to the constitutional order, or if you think Elizabeth Warren is a danger to the constitutional order, for that matter, uh, how about... Uh, Let's say moi Bloomberg as a threat to the constitutional order. And um, Joel reminds us that, among other things uh, that Bloomberg did as a the sitting mayor of New York, which is rather ironic, given the conspiracy theories that surround Trump, is he actually changed the law in the city of New York to allow himself to run for a third term. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Joel Kotkin, internationally recognized author on global economic, political and social trends. Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University and author of The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us. Joel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. So uh, as we're uh, watching uh, Michael Bloomberg uh, sort of spend his way towards Super Tuesday, you took the time out to remind us of what the complete Bloomberg record uh, was as mayor of New York City that that may be instructive. Well, the thing about Bloomberg is, uh, first of all, you know, he's having to run in some ways against his own record. Um, yeah. When he was uh, mayor, not only did he have a very tough on crime position, which I, you know, in some ways I think was pretty effective, which he inherited from Giuliani. Now he has to distance himself. But most importantly, he really drove a New York economy and a vision of New York as what he called the luxury city. 
And um, this is the exact opposite of what I think many Democrats who are supporting you know, uh, Senator Sanders or Senator Warren, it's not exactly what they're looking for. Um, but the most dangerous thing about uh, Bloomberg, frankly, is just that he's so rich that he could literally buy virtually every interest group in this country. Um, you know, he, uh, he just uh, talked about committing billions of dollars of his own money to the African-American community. Um, in New York, he essentially bought off the entire civic culture, so nobody would criticize him. Um, although he's not, although so, so far, this merger yeah. of wealth and power ever contemplated in this country. Well, and so far it's interesting because um, you're right about his wealth, but then he still is going back to sort of the old standards for uh, the big government Democrats. He's proposed, uh, you know, the, the proverbial Marshall Plan for urban centers uh, as one of his uh, first acts were he to be elected. Well, and I think he, he, what he would do is it would be as close to an elected dictatorship than we've ever had. You know, I'm not a Trump fan, I, um, but one thing is, as a, as a businessman, as an economic force, he's a joke relative to, uh, to Bloomberg. I mean, if the Trump organization went out of business tomorrow, I don't think anyone would much notice. Um, but on the other hand, in, at least in terms of the you know, economic effect, Bloomberg is not only powerful and rich, he also owns important media. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really scary. You have a guy who, I mean, I get every morning, I get something from Bloomberg News, and, it, you, know, and you say, well, did Bloomberg write it? Did Bloomberg's uh, contributors write it? I mean, he's, he's going after the man he wants to replace as president, uh, which, is, which is fine, but he's using enormous... Uh, journal so-called journalistic um, uh, mechanisms to do it. This is this is just. It, it's almost as if Citizen Kane became president. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I. I. And and the other thing that's concerning about that uh, may it goes back to some of what he did with sort of the the consolidation of power. As mayor of New York City, uh, I mentioned one of the things you mentioned, changing the law there so he could run for a third term. And then there's also, of course, some of his more high profile busybodiness when it came to regulating the size of uh, sodas that you can imbibe and that sort of thing. Yeah, he has a he has a sense of his um, uh, right to tell everyone how to live. And, you know, I I know like what will happen. He gets into office. He's going to start saying, well, people have to cut their carbon footprint. Now, of course, I go to Bermuda every weekend, you know, <laughs> the Bahamas every weekend on my private jet. But, you know, you, Joe Schmo, living in the suburbs of, uh, you know, of St. Louis or wh- wherever, you know, you really probably should live in an apartment. Yeah, you know, give up that car and maybe you can, you know, you can ride the bus for an hour to get to work. I mean, this, you know, what you're going to see is sort of a kind of, emergence of a kind of feudal society where um, Bloomberg um, actually is the king. Well, and I'll tell you what, one of the other issues, and this is the issue that's profiled in his Super Bowl ad, and that's been uh, where he has also spent a lot of money and exerted a lot of influence on gun control. And if you thought the rally in Virginia a couple of weeks ago was big, if Bloomberg gets his way and treats gun ownership like he treats a big gulp intake, 
then you're going to have, uh, you know, you're going to have a real moment in this country if uh, he wants to to, to uh, go after people's guns the way that Booker and Beto talked about it, but Bloomberg could actually do it. Well, not only would he, would he be able to do it, he would probably want to do it. I mean, this, this is a very authoritarian personality. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that I you know, disagree with everything he, does, he says, and in some, on some issues, even to some extent climate, but even uh, more so, let's say, charter schools, mm-hmm. you know, he's definitely more enlightened than, than the mainstream of the Democratic Party today. So, I mean, it's, it's not that, that his views are all terrible. It's this confluence of arrogance, money, and power that we have to be very careful about. You know, my sense of it is Trump may have an authoritarian personality, but he's, he's too incompetent and narcissistic to, to make it work. Uh, Bloomberg um, is much smarter, much more focused, much more organized, and much more cynical. The uh, irony may be that uh, some of Bloomberg's more enlightened instincts, like on education reform, you mentioned charter schools, that may be precisely what prevents his money from securing the nomination for him. Well, he's going to have a very rough time. I mean, the, you know, and, and in some ways, it's it's kind of a good thing that you know candidates can now raise money on the internet with in, in small contributions. And you know, I, you know, Bernie's not going away. Warren's probably not going away. Um, you know, he's going to have to deal with them, and they have enthusiastic support. I mean, you know, Bloomberg has to buy enthusiasm. Bernie, in particular, generates his own. Yeah, and uh, a saying I like because you've we've seen a lot of self-funding candidates uh, in the history of American politics. Maybe not at this level, but uh, so it's a matter of degree, but not kind. The political graveyard's full of a lot of self-funding candidates who found out that sometimes there's not enough money in the world to sell manure-smelling air freshener, and we'll see if that's the case with Bloomberg. I well, suppose. Well, I think in the case of Trump, you know, he, you know, he he obviously spent money, but you know, he was outspent significantly by Clinton, so he, yes. he didn't buy the election. He just had a he just had a, a better, more appealing product. He is Joel Kotkin, internationally recognized authority on global economic, political, and social trends, presidential fellow in urban futures at Chapman University, and author of The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us. Joel Kotkin, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're now pleased to be joined by our old friend, and I don't mean that age. I mean, we've known her a long time. She's been on this show many times. A favorite guest, she is Katie McFarland, former First Deputy National Security Advisor to President Trump. She has a new book, and uh, I'm sure this one is NSC-approved, unlike Bolton's. Uh, the book, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. And I say that lovingly because John Bolton is a friend of the show as well. KT, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan? KT, why don't we start just uh, with your take because so much of it uh, has been wrapped up in 
National Security Council and intelligence agencies and foreign service officers. As we look to be nearing the end of the impeachment trial, what has been your take on what you've witnessed over the last several weeks and several months? I think Trump is a revolution. I don't think he started the revolution. I think he's led the revolution. And it is the American people who've said, you know, I don't like the policies, economic or foreign policies of the Republicans and Democrats. And the establishment. I don't like it, and I want a new guy. And what you're seeing, it's all been the establishment, the Washington elite, the press, the administrative state, the career bureaucrats, the Washington politicians of all stripes, fighting back against this populist uprising and revolution. And I think the impeachment, which I hope ends today, is the last gas. I mean, this is their last shot. They took it. They failed. And I do think Trump will be reelected. There's a lot of uh, a lot of people, um, including some Republicans that were inclined for witnesses, uh, inclined to more witnesses for me- diff- completely different reasons than, say, Mitt Romney, who still yearn for reckoning for some of uh, the bad actors people we know are bad actors or people that are perceived to be bad actors in some sense. And we still have the Durham investigation ongoing and we'll see the results of that. But I think there's still this open question in the minds of a lot of those who want that revolution that you're talking about and that you've written this book about. When is there going to be accountability for the upper reaches at the FBI, at the intelligence agencies, at that fourth branch of government? Well, I think that um, I had figured that it wouldn't happen. I mean, I know that they did it because I was a victim of it. The Mueller people tried to push me into admitting guilt for crimes I never committed. And at the end of the day, I called their bluff and said, all right, charge me, we'll go to court, and I'll spend the rest of my life fighting you guys. But in the end, they kind of backed down. Hmm. I do think that it was the intelligence community, upper reaches of the Obama administration. And I always thought that they would never be held accountable because Washington tends to just say, well, we fired those guys. Mm -hmm. We don't want to hurt the institutions, therefore we'll move on. I think, in fact, the opposite is going to happen, that the attorney general is not afraid of taking this where it goes. And you mentioned the Durham report. That's the one to watch because he's the state attorney for Connecticut. He's doing what was initially an investigation to see whether any wrongdoing had been committed. And now he's actually impaneled a grand jury. He's going to bring criminal charges. And I would not be at all surprised if it's some of the same people that, you know, at the highest reaches of the FBI and Justice Department. Um, I wanted to get your take on uh, a big development this week, uh, you know, a substantive development amidst all of the the bluster inside the Beltway, and that is the proposed uh, Middle East peace plan that was unveiled by the Trump administration, the work largely of Jared Kushner over the last three years as the, the president's point man on this, and whether uh, you think, regardless of whether that actually ever comes to pass, if there's ever going to be a lasting peace in that region, if it at least serves to further bracket Iran and prevent their expansionism in the region. Dan, I mean, you're a really thoughtful guy, and we've talked about these sort of the, more, the deeper issues here. And so I think what, the, what Jared Kushner understood was that, look, we've just been having the same conversation for the last 30 years, and it never goes anywhere. You've got to change the underlying and fundamental conditions. And so first, fix the American economy and make America energy independent so we don't need Middle East oil. Secondly, crush Iran economically, and when they took out General Soleimani, that really finished their um, terrorism activities in the region. So you fundamentally have changed the Iran part of the equation now, and the oil, you holding the world hostage to Arab oil. The second part of it, though, was to improve the U.S. relationship, and by, by connection, the, the Israeli relationship with the Sunni Arabs, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf Arab states. And that's also been accomplished. So the fundamental 
configuration of the Middle East has now changed. The Iranians no longer are supporting or have the money or the wherewithal to support a lot of the Palestinian terrorist groups. And Israel has made a peace of sorts with the Sunni Arabs. And so I think that the current generation of, of Palestinian leaders, they're not going to go for this, because if they did, they'd be out of a job, because they'd have to have an election, and they wouldn't be reelected. But at the end of the day, maybe three, five years from now, it's the businessmen of Israel and Palestine, the Palestinian territories and throughout the Sunni Arab world who are going to say, enough, we just want to make money and have a better life for our people. Forget these politicians. Mm. KT McFarland, former First Deputy National Security Advisor to President Trump, author of the new book, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. KT, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Good luck with the book. I'll see you at CPAC. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Switching gears, moving away from impeachment for a moment. I had mentioned this study yesterday. In our conversation about National School Choice Week, a tale of two schools in Chicago that's uh, repeating itself in other major metropolitan areas controlled by the, the, the left for the last 50 to 100 years, or certainly like Chicago has been. This study that comes to us from Brightbeam, which is a, a nonprofit uh, organization of uh, focused on education reform, and uh, their look at big uh, cities and their school systems and what's happening with respect to the gap in educational performance. And what they find is that in the city, in America's most progressive cities, there is greater racial inequity in achievement and graduation rates than students living in the nation's most conservative cities controlling for population. Since uh, all the biggest cities are controlled by the left, it's much smaller cities that have anything resembling like conservatives at the helm. But to just some of the data points, progressive cities on average have achievement gaps in math and reading that are 15 and 13 points higher than in conservative cities, respectively. In San Francisco, for example, 70% of white students proficient in math compared to only 12% of black students. D.C., 83% of white students proficient in reading compared with 23% of black students. And by contrast, Three of the 12 most conservative cities they looked at, Virginia Beach, Anaheim, and Fort Worth, have effectively closed or even erased the gap in at least one of the academic categories they examine, reading and or math. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Tom Lifson, editor and publisher of The American Thinker, AmericanThinker.com. Tom, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Dan. So uh, sort of an an important study as we are talking about uh, school choice uh, as part of education reform this week, as you have the Espinoza case uh, pending before the Supreme Court that would uh, perhaps uh, strike down Blaine amendments at the state level and expand the opportunities for school choice around the nation. And we find that the old centrally planned system run in big cities like the one I live in in Chicago uh, continues to not work continues to especially not work for minorities, and continues to to demand a new model. 
Yes, exactly. Uh, it, this uh, study, which I, I haven't seen anybody attacking Brightbeam as a conservative outfit. I think they have pretty uh, good credentials as a, as a neutral party studying educational achievement and concerned about the, the gap that uh, extends across um, pretty much all of the groups that the left uh, identifies as oppressed or discriminated against uh, with the majority white population and uh, the Asian, especially East Asian uh, and South Asian populations uh, in, in, in our uh, student body. And this, I think this study, more than anything else, uh, points out the gap between intentions and results uh, from progressive ideology. Uh, and it also, I think, points out the degree to which monopoly, government monopolies in education have degenerated, which happens with all kinds of bureaucracies, to serve the interests of the professionals who work in the field as opposed to the clients or the customers, in this case, the students. And there's there's uh, there's some additional suggestion because the uh, other the cities that are tend to be more conservative. They looked at not all of those cities have robust school choice programs, but there, there's there, there, there's another layer here. Right. And that's sort of the actual ideology undergirding the curriculum and the method of instruction. And this gets to their focus on social justice uh political goals rather than reading comprehension and basic arithmetic. Right. In, in, in my view, and this is just a personal view, not based on any studies, uh, I, I think telling people that their problems in life are due to something beyond their control, in this case racism, uh, discourages achievement. Uh, when told that it's hopeless, why struggle? Why, why try to achieve if, if you believe, if you've been told by authority figures in your school and elsewhere, that you haven't got a chance? Why would anybody bestir him or herself to hit the books, uh, do the unpleasant things that are necessary for real learning? The arduous, time-consuming rote memorization, for example. Uh, whereas if you're if you're told that uh, you are the master of your own destiny, uh, then people uh, may be motivated to improve themselves, to take command of their destiny and try to find an outcome that's more satisfactory to them uh, in adulthood. Sort of the, the soft bit. Ignorance the, and uh, uh, low wages. The soft bigotry of low expectations persists. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, in addition. Worse than low expectations, negative expectations. Right. Well, the additionally too, there, there was another movement afoot that we've talked about on this show a bit, but uh, I don't think it's gotten the attention it deserves, and that is walking away from discipline in the ca- classroom. And this is a lament of teachers as well in some of these schools. Yeah. They can't control their classrooms, and that obviously interrupts learning for all students. If you're going to allow the the inmates to run the asylum, as it were, or at least a few of the inmates to run the asylum because you want to uh, end this uh, sort of abstract notion of the school-to-prison pipeline. Right. And that, of course, drives out the motivated uh, and excellent teachers because they, they, they find it worse than hopeless. They, they are frustrated uh, in their efforts to rescue those who need rescuing and help those excel that have the ability to excel. They can't do that if the classroom is dominated by a, a few miscreants who... Uh, gain attention and uh, gain power by acting up. It's it's a terrible situation, 
uh, in my view, I'm, I'm glad you're talking about school choice, that this is a school choice week. That's the only solution that I can see. I think it's impossible to reform the bureaucracies at this point. Right. And I mean, and, and again, the arguments against school choice are just so curious to me since we accept as sort of received wisdom in every other sector of our society, including in education at the collegiate level, that competition is a good thing. But for some reason, K through 12 systems in big uh, cities run by uh, progressive elites should be insulated from competition. It's a very curious position. Yes. Well, it it's, uh, reflects the political realities that uh, teachers unions donate a lot of money. It does that. That that certainly helps explain it. He is Tom Lifson. He's the editor and publisher of The American Thinker, AmericanThinker.com. He's uh, written on this uh, Brightbeam study we were just discussing, which I'll tweet out his very excellent piece as well. Tom Lifson, thanks so much for joining us on The Dan Prop Show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And there was a special election in the state of Texas that was supposed to be a big story, and it turned out to be not much of a story at all. I mean, yes, the week dominated by impeachment. And Kobe. But uh, this story would have bubbled up to the surface had it worked out the way the Democrats and their handmaidens in the media wanted it to work out, but it didn't. I'm talking about a state house district, legislative, state legislative district in Texas, in uh, suburbs of Houston, House District 28. There's a special runoff election to fill a vacant state house seat left open by the resignation of the Republican incumbent who took a job at the University of Texas. Democrats uh, sensed an opening here, you know, suburbs of Houston, those suburban districts that were instrumental in flipping the House for Democrats in 2018. This could be another marker they put down to signal to the rest of the country that uh, the path to the White House goes through these suburbs. Trump is in trouble. Texas is turning blue. Texas is in play, right? Well, they brought in everybody they could. The uh, Democrat candidate, Elizabeth Markowitz, received, this is amazing, $1.3 million from national and state Democrat groups. More than 70% of her contributions came from outside Texas, outside the state for a state house seat. 70% is remarkable. More than 95% from outside her district. Um, Her Republican opponent, Gary Gates, uh, a wealthy individual was able to sort of go dollar for dollar with all the outside Democrat money. Uh, Beto O'Rourke came in to campaign for her. Uh, Julian Castro came in to campaign for Ms. Markowitz, the Democrat. You had uh, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Mike Bloomberg all endorsed this candidate for his state house seat in Texas. Bloomberg even carved out time to go door to door with her. Bobby O called it uh, the most important election yet in 2020. And what happened? She got hammered. Gary Gates, the Republican, beat her by 16 points, 58 to 42. In point of fact, his 16-point margin was more than twice the Republican incumbent's margin in 2018. 
larger than the district's margin for President Trump in 2016, which was 10 points, and Senator Cruz in 2018, which was only three points. And the, those close races in 16 and 18 is what gave Democrats hope that this was trending their way. And again, suburban district and a big urban center. And this is where the Democrats are going to make their bones. No, not outside Houston, not in the state of Texas. 16 point margin for the Republican candidate. Again, uh, Trump won it by 10 in 16. Cruz won, won it by only three in 18. And uh, it was uh, not close, despite all of that national and state Democrat support in 2020. So maybe that did turn out to be a canary in the coal mine, just not the one the Democrats thought it would be. This is the Dan Prof Show. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. You know, as a uh... Boring as the uh, two days of Q&A were, there were a couple of moments where uh, yeah, people show you who they are. Like this one from Elizabeth Warren, the question that she sent up to the desk for Justice Roberts to read in his deadpan style. The question from Senator Warren is for the House managers. At a time when large majorities of Americans have lost faith in government, does the fact that the Chief Justice is presiding over an impeachment trial in which Republican senators have thus far refused to allow witnesses or evidence contribute to the loss of legitimacy of the Chief Justice, the Supreme Court, (laughs) and the Constitution. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and Adam Schiff gets up there and says, no, no, of course, uh, we very much respect the job that John Roberts is doing, but, uh, but thank you for the question nonetheless, because it allows me to say for the 47th time what I've uh, said about President Trump and this sham trial and uh, and how and the 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 republic hanging in the balance and so on and so forth it's just so tortured but it was fun and then there was this other weird moment where uh, Rand Paul sent up a question and he he got, <laughs> well, he got shot down yeah the presiding officer declines to read the question as submitted and uh, the he declined to read a question that uh, Rand Paul asked about the alleged whistleblower because the whistleblower's name, that's ostensibly the reason. But Rand Paul uh, tweeted out the question he asked. He asked, are you aware that House Intelligence Committee staffer Sean Misko had a close relationship with Eric Cheramella while at the National Security Council together? And are you aware and how do you respond to the reports that Cheramella and Misko may have worked together to plot impeaching the president before there were formal House impeachment proceedings? That was his question. And uh, he so he and he made the point in tweeting about it that it wasn't about a quote unquote whistleblower, as I have no independent information about his identity. The question was about the actions of known partisans within the National Security Council and House staff and how they are reported to have conspired before impeachment proceedings had ever begun. But uh, I don't know. You know, Roberts is a Republican appointed Supreme Court justice who, like so many Republican appointed Supreme Court justices 
wants to, to be uh, thought of as not a Republican appointed Supreme Court justice or nominated and thus confirmed, but effectively appointed. For more on the whole impeachment matter, because uh, he's got a novel piece on this. I, I like this 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 uh, piece, at least for a think exercise, because it's not going to happen. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we like to do thinking here. Francis Metton is the Manhattan contrarian, uh, and he's written over his blog, ManhattanContrarian.com. Two reasons why continuing a little with impeachment might not be such a bad thing. Francis, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good morning. Great to be here. Good morning. And so... Um, you know, make your case. You, you think that it would be uh, perhaps useful to it's not going to happen, but perhaps useful to continue on with a witness or two. But none of the names that have been bandied about by Republicans, that's not at the top of your witness list. Who is and why? Uh, number one on my witness list is Victor Shokin. Uh, I haven't seen him mentioned by anybody, which doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Uh, when, the, when the Republicans or their supporters or the president's supporters talk about uh, potential witnesses, they seem to always talk about Joe or Hunter Biden. But, of course, Joe and Hunter Biden would be committed hostile witnesses who would never give you an answer that you wanted, very much like Schiff's total non-answer to that question from uh, Rand Paul that you just read. He, that's what happens when you question a hostile witness. You don't get an answer. Shokin is the opposite. Shokin was fired at the behest of Biden and uh, it, it totally hates Biden and thinks Biden is corrupt. And if you don't believe it, uh, if you don't believe that that's what Shokin thinks, he just filed, and I'm talking about Tuesday of this week, a, compl- a criminal complaint charging Joe Biden with a crime in the courts of Ukraine. Uh, and that a complaint is available online. Uh, and of course, Shokin is angry with good reason at Biden because Biden had him fired. And Shokin says in his complaint that he was um, uh, investigating the Burisma company and that Burisma was uh, being protected specifically because Hunter Biden was on the board. I mean, this guy would be a great witness for the Republicans. And there are plenty of other people in Ukraine. Um, uh, Also, to add to the list, if you want to, there's a guy... Uh, who has a video online named Renat Kuzmin, who was an associate prosecutor over in Ukraine. And he, there's a video of him making the following statement. Uh, Zlochovsky, that's the head of Burisma, hired Hunter Biden with the sole goal of putting pressure on the Ukrainian authorities to force them to stop the judicial investigation of Burisma. <laughs> so how about him for a witness? I haven't seen his name mentioned anywhere. No, I, I tell you, that's why I thought your piece is very, very provocative. Uh, you know, the, the good news is that uh, if not for the impeachment trial, then maybe uh, we'll get uh, Lindsey Graham a copy of your piece and he can uh, whistle those two before the Senate Judiciary Committee after the fact. Yeah, the latest I've seen, and you were just mentioning it on the witness question, is is uh, the Democrats do not have the votes to call witnesses, and the whole thing will probably end today. But anyway, if it goes on, this this could be fun if they did this. If they called Joe or Hunter Biden, it would just blow up. Uh, you, uh, speaking of our government, you uh, penned another piece over at ManhattanContrarian.com about our government in the wake of a, a Supreme Court ruling this week on the president's immigration power. And the uh, interesting thing about that ruling was the rebuke that Neil Gorsuch sent uh in the direction of lower courts that have been uh, injunction happy when it comes to uh, this administration and its uh, delineated constitutional the, the, and the delineated executive 
powers in our Constitution with respect to areas of uh, law like immigration? Uh, yes, yeah, so I expound a little bit on, on that. I mean, my, my post specifically was about the, the recent immigration um, uh, litigation results and the, the order from the Southern District of New York, which put a nationwide stay on the public charge rule change that the administration was trying to uh, uh, put through, but then the Supreme Court stayed that injunction, and that's the case that uh, inspired the uh, concurrence from Justice Gorsuch, which is really quite a unique thing, right? funny to read. Um, uh, but there were 21 litigations brought trying to stop that public charge rule, and five of them got injunctions out of one district judge or another scattered around the country. Uh, some of those injunctions only applied in one state, actually. Uh, Illinois is the one remaining. Illinois injunction yes. was in right. that category, but right. multiple of them applied all around the country. And um, uh, it, 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 you wonder how how a Republican government can govern at all when anything they do that's controversial at all plaintiffs can go and find some judge, it only takes one, to issue the nationwide injunction. They bring 20 cases, they find one judge, they get their injunction, and uh, uh, and then the whole thing stops, unless they, unless they have five votes in the Supreme Court. And remember that the census litigation, which followed a very similar process, that's the citizen, adding a citizenship question to the census, and that got to the Supreme Court in June, and Roberts voted with the Democrats. And at that point, the um, the administration gave up. No, I know, but, but the, the, the importance of Gorsuch's concurring opinion is what I wanted to focus on, because it was a message about constitutional principles, and it was an effort to try and direct the discussion there. Forget who the president is and forget what the issue is, the idea of this uh, a separation of powers and the judiciary operating within uh, its constitutional constraints. That's the larger conversation. Uh, yes, it is, uh, because if if one district judge uh, can um, can issue the injunction, and, and this is the point that Gorsuch makes, if one district court can issue the injunction, it puts the whole executive branch in an impossible position. I think I have a quote here in my uh, post from Gorsuch, who says the stakes are asymmetric. This is Gorsuch. If a single successful challenge is enough to stay the challenged rule across the country, the government's hope of implementing any new policy could face the long odds of a straight sweep, parlaying a 94 to zero win in the district courts and a 12 to zero victory in the courts of appeals. Any one of them going the other way, and the administration's policy is is wiped out. Which which. And, of course, the plaintiffs can go looking for a favorable district judge. They can bring 20 cases, see who they get, right. take the one with the most favorable judge. And this process leaves a handful of district judges effectively running government policy. He is Francis Menton. He's the Manhattan Contrarian. ManhattanContrarian.com is his blog. Francis Menton, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft. 
and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Switching gears from our uh, discussion of impeachment with Francis Menton, uh, we've identified the, the, the culprit, the person responsible for all that's wrong with America economically, the person responsible for the political polarization resulting from income inequality and uh, decades of economic stagnation, at least until the last three years of Trump. You know who that is? Milton Friedman. Nobel Prize winning economist. Yeah, Milton Friedman's the problem. A very good uh, piece by Russ Roberts from the Hoover Institution over at Medium.com. What's uh, happened is that over the course of the last 50 years, thanks a lot to Milton Friedman, we have adopted this uh, radical allegiance to free markets. And we've uh, disinvested in uh, public goods like education and infrastructure. And we've uh, been dismissive of the interests of working people uh, who are displaced from jobs because of technological advancements and global trade. Yeah. According to uh, Benjamin Applebaum in The New York Times, in the four decades between 1969 and 2008, economists played a leading role in slashing taxation of the wealthy and in curbing public investment. They supervised the deregulation of major sectors, including transportation and communications. They lionize big business, defending the concentration of corporate power, even as they demonize trade unions and oppose worker protections like minimum wage laws. Growth slowed, inequality soared, devastating consequences. Perhaps the starkest measure of the failure of our economic policies is that the average American's life expectancy is in decline as inequalities of wealth have become inequalities of health. Ooh, nice turn of a phrase. Um, Well, number one. The good news that was out yesterday is that uh, life expectancy ticked back up ever so slightly last year. And so that is good news after the very disturbing news about life expectancy declining over the last couple, in large part because of uh, drug usage, opioid addiction, uh, drug uh, overdose deaths down and life expectancy up just a little bit. The most important figure, Applebaum continues, was Milton Friedman, an elfin libertarian who refused to take a job in Washington but whose writings and exhortations seize the imaginative policymakers. Friedman offered an appealingly simple answer for the nation's problems. Government should get out of the way. And this was uh, how we got off track and opened this Pandora's box of uh, those uh, economic maladies from which we suffer today, according to Benjamin Applebaum. Hmm. By the way, uh, Milton Friedman did have a government job, but he's a part of the reason we have the withholding system. So if I was going to stick up Milton Friedman, as he did himself over anything he did in his career, it would be uh, uh, make it would be helping to create the withholding system for income taxation so that people sort of, uh, you know, die the death of of the frog in the boiling water rather than having to write a check. He's not the only one, Applebaum, who's come to this conclusion. Larry Kramer, president of the Hewlett Foundation, former dean of Stanford Law, wrote, unfortunately, today's prevailing intellectual paradigm, which has come to be labeled neoliberalism, is no longer up to the task. However well this free market orthodoxy suited the late 20th century when it achieved broad acceptance, it has proved unable to provide satisfactory answers to problems like wealth inequality, wage stagnation, economic dislocation due to globalization, and loss of jobs and economic security due to technology and automation. And those uh, government-centered economies the world over have, 
proven equal to those tasks? Larry? Hmm. Also, um, just so we don't accept the left's premises, otherwise you get the left's conclusions. Faulty premises give you faulty conclusions. Um, the story they're telling just isn't true. <laughs> there's, there's that part of it. I, if only... If only what Larry Kramer and Benjamin Applebaum were saying were true, that we actually did embark upon a Friedmanite focus on reducing the size and scope, expanse and expense of government in exchange for free exchange. If only we had done that. What's actually happened over the last 50 years when it comes to these uh, measurements, they're referencing in the abstract without putting numbers to them. Let's put some numbers to them. Russ Roberts did, thankfully. Today, government spending across federal, state, and local levels is $7.2 trillion. As a percentage of GDP, it's uh, 33%. That compares to 30% in 1980. That compares to 25% in 1962, the year Friedman published his uh, manifesto, Capitalism and Freedom. So, I mean, again, real dollars um, adjusted for inflation, government spending at all levels as a percentage of GDP in the last 50 years has gone up by a third. That is not inconsequential. And it certainly is not slashing and burning government. And that doesn't even include the money that we're committed to spend that we haven't underwritten So $100 trillion plus of unfunded liabilities in our federal entitlement programs. you got to factor that in, too. Government has been slashed and burned. How about on uh, public goods like education? Right? This is the uh, mantra. Many, um, all on the left, some even on the right, too. What's the the problem with K-12 education and what's the solution? Always more inputs. You can never spend enough. Well, in 1960, per pupil expenditure for uh, elementary and high school students was just under four grand. In 1980, when, according to the critics of free markets, this uh, neoliberal paradigm was installed and broadly accepted, the number was $8,000. Again, these numbers adjusted for inflation. The uh, numbers from 2015, 2016, just under 15,000. So from 60 to 80, per pupil spending in elementary and high school student in the elementary and high school level doubled. And then over the next 35 years, it doubled again. Infrastructure spending, total spending is up in real terms. Uh, it's been a slight decline as a percentage of GDP, but they're basically, they're basically flat since 1980. Um, so this is not exactly the slashing and burning of public investment. It's not certainly the reduction in the size and scope and ubiquity of government and government regulations. I mean, the Federal Register uh, is another way to to measure that. And, uh, of course, uh, the, the Trump is getting high marks for deregulation just for not introducing any new regulations. And for those few industries that have been uh, that are less regulated than they were, say, in 1980, trucking, communications, air tra- airline travel, uh, even Applebaum and Kramer concede that has been good news for consumers of those services. Here's the bottom line. Milton Friedman isn't the problem. The problem is this 
this this uh, ideology of the apple bombs and the Kramers and the Pickettys of the world, which is blank check government, blank check government and government as the not so silent partner in all aspects of economic life. They want a government directed economy. And when they're not getting it, what they say is you're disinvesting in the public sector. You're relying on the the uh, animal spirits of capitalism, the uh, cravenness of markets. But when if there's any road that deviates from leading to the government, you can count on the Keynesians and the Marxists to make this same argument, regardless of the data, regardless of what's actually occurred. If only I say again, if only what they say occurred over the last 30 years actually had, we'd be a much more prosperous, much more free society. This is The Dan Prof Show. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show, and it's Independence Day in Britain as uh, the Brexit votes, plural, by the people finally become a reality. Britain leaves the EU. Uh, Joseph Sternberg writing the Wall Street Journal about the importance of this, not just for Britain, but maybe for the entire continent. Uh, the uh, Saying what uh, a Brexit is, it's not, it's, not, it's not just about um, uh, Britain's economy, but it's whether democracy in the West still means voters are entitled to choose policy even when, especially when, their self-proclaimed betters dislike the choice. Brexit has proved a profound shock to Europe's system because it's so unusual these days for European voters to get their way on anything important. And, of course, uh, that was the basis for it. That was the basis of the loss of confidence in the EU was not getting what the EU promised. Uh, so Sternberg argues the Brexit may actually make Europe safe for democracy again. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Toby Young, associate editor of The Spectator and London associate editor at Quillette. Toby, thanks for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, is that your assessment uh, as well, uh, that uh, this is not just about British independence, but it's about uh, sort of a restoration of uh, confidence in small d democracy in uh, Europe more generally? I- Yes, well, it, 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 absolutely. Uh, um, I was a staunch Brexiteer, campaigned for the lead vote in 2016, was absolutely delighted when we won, and then was shocked at the efforts of the establishment to then uh, uh, frustrate the result um, and uh, make it impossible to implement. Uh, and we had to win not just one, but two general elections and a European election. We had to essentially win four victories. Just winning one wasn't enough. Uh, but when we won four, finally, we're actually going to get what we voted for back in 2016. And um, it's unusual for a country once in the EU uh, to leave. Um, uh, various other countries have held referendums about whether to leave or, or, or remain. Uh, and uh, whenever the leave side has won in other countries, like in Ireland uh, or in Denmark, um, uh, or uh, it, it, the EU insists that they hold another referendum, uh, until they get the result that they want and the country remains in. So, yeah, absolutely. It's a victory for democracy. And lots of people who voted in 2016 were people who hadn't voted for a long time because they'd lost faith 
in democracy in Britain. Um, and, uh, and it looked as though that lack of faith was right for quite some time. But three and a half years later, finally, uh, uh, I hope their, their faith in democracy uh, has been restored. There's uh, no question that uh, Britain is done with Brussels, but there is some question if, as to whether Brussels is done with Britain, isn't there? Uh, yes, I mean it's. Uh, uh, I actually um, a, a, a newsreader here um, uh, called Jeremy Paxman made a documentary for the BBC in which he looked at the percentage of laws that had been passed in the Britain's laws that had been passed originated in the European Parliament, and it was more than fifty percent, uh, which was extraordinary. And every time the British uh, objected to a law being imposed on the United Kingdom uh, in meetings behind closed doors in Brussels, they were overruled. Uh, people talk now about us being rule takers, not rule makers. You know, we're not at the decision-making table any longer, but we're still going to have to accept some regulations if we want to trade with uh, the rest of the European continent. But we've always been rule takers. We've never been rule makers for 47 years. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that we're out. Well, and this is also sort of a, a renewal of accountability for politicians in Britain who can no longer hide behind Brussels to uh, uh, avoid blame for what they failed to produce. That's right. I mean, uh, we've seen um, an ebbing away of power from our elected parliament. Uh, it ebbs away to the courts. Uh, it ebbs away to Brussels. Uh, so this is a really huge step in actually restoring uh, some of those powers to Parliament and making us, uh, once again, the masters of our own destiny. Uh, and you, you, see, you see something similar in the United States with lots of uh, decisions being taken out of the hands of electorate and turned over to the courts, and the courts end up imposing a kind of moral dogma on the populace that uh, it couldn't, it, you know, would never carry, it would never pass muster at the ballot box. When we come back with Toby Young, I want to switch gears and uh, address this piece you, wrote, piece you wrote about the cancel culture, as well as your personal story about dealing with the cancel culture mob. Uh, more with Toby Young, associate editor of The Spectator, London associate editor at Colette, when we come back on The Dan Brock Show. Live by the river To the invitation zone Forget it, brother You can go in alone London calling To the zombies of death Quit holding out and draw another breath. Running, calling, and I don't want to shout. But while we were talking, I saw you nodding out. Running, calling, see you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Back on the Dan Prof Show, and uh, our friends over at HotAir.com detailed a story this week of the so-called cancel culture striking again. The publisher of American Dirt, which is uh, this uh, best-selling book, uh, the uh, uh, about uh, uh, the story of an immigrant, a woman and her son fleeing Mexico to escape cartel violence. This was a book that was praised by Oprah Winfrey, 
several Latino celebrities. The uh, publisher announced this week canceling the book tour. Well, why would that be? Well, it turns out that the author, Janine Cummins, uh, is being charged by the left with essentially cultural appropriation and caricaturing of the Mexican-American, excuse me, the Mexican immigrant experience, the the Mexican national trying to come to this country. And so uh, the publisher announcing, unfortunately, and listen to this, our concerns about safety have led us to the difficult decision to cancel the book tour. It's rather remarkable, but of course the author, beset by the identitarian politics of our time, she essentially gave in to the mob saying, I was worried that as a non-immigrant and non-Mexican, I had no business writing a book set almost entirely in Mexico, set entirely among immigrants. I wish someone slightly browner than me would write it. So the author of the the book in question, which is somebody else would have done her work for her. And now she's succumbing to the mob that they have agreed with her that her writing this book that she wrote is illegitimate. It is a very difficult logic to follow. Toby Young, associate editor of The Spectator, who uh, joins us to discuss the cancel culture. Um, just another story uh, that I'm sure you're not surprised by. But uh, talk to us about the cancel culture and, and how people may be more inclined to fight back against this sort of uh, thuggery and um, unenlightened behavior can do so, Toby. Yeah, well, this is uh, the episode you just described is shocking. Um, and uh, the fact that she's now apologized, you know, prostrated herself at the feet of this digital twitchable mob um, is very much the wrong move. But, you know, it's like throwing... Uh, yeah, thinking you can draw a line under an affair like this by apologizing is like thinking you can calm down a shoal of piranha fish by throwing them some raw meat. Um, <laughs> they're going to go into a blood-craved frenzy now, and uh, I'm afraid it won't end until she's actually withdrawn her book and set fire to every single copy. It, what's so ridiculous about this is that she is, in fact, uh, she has a, a Puerto Rican grandmother. Uh, so she is uh, you know, a quarter Hispanic, apparently, only being 25% Hispanic doesn't give you the license to write about Mexican immigrants. I mean, it's like, do they imagine that uh, Charles Dickens, you know, um, uh, uh, could own, should only have ever written about kind of uh, middle-aged, white, fat men? I mean, thank God he didn't observe that rule in the 19th century. And the same applies to acting now as well. It's like uh, it's really like the opening scene in Thomas Wolfe's Radical Chic, where Leonard Bernstein is uh, talking to a Black Panther who he's hosting for a fundraiser at his well-appointed Manhattan penthouse. And he says to the Black Panther, aren't you offended by the, the, the garishness of the luxuriousness of my apartment? And the Black Panther says no. And Leonard Bernstein says, well, I am. I mean, it's just it's hard to wrap your head around this. And you've had an experience with these people. Yeah, no, I um, I, I, I was canceled myself at the beginning of uh, 2018. I was appointed by Theresa May, then the prime minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, to serve as one of 15 people on the board of a new higher education regulator. And, um, you know, because I'm a, a white, middle aged. Uh, heterosexual, cisgendered, Tory-supporting, Brexit-supporting, <laughs> balding, middle-aged man. Um, it didn't go down very well in the university sector. And uh, uh, the offence archaeologists uh, went to work 
searching through everything I'd said or written, dating back to 1987. Um, and, uh, and sure enough, they soon found uh, outrageous things I'd said on Twitter and written in The Spectator. Someone dug up an article I'd written uh, in The Spectator in 2001 about um, some obscure satellite channel I was uh, assertive fan of because it featured topless ladies draping themselves over fast cars. Um, uh, I praised this show, and the sub-editor of the spectator put as the headline on my piece, Confessions of a Porn Addict, uh, which I thought was quite funny at the time. And uh, some little morality cop uh, dug this piece up out of the spectator's archive, stuck a screen grab on Twitter, and within 30 minutes, London's main evening paper ran a story with the headline, Pressure mounts on Theresa May as new university czar confesses to being porn. <laughs> oh goodness! Uh, and I had to, I, I had to, and I stood down after a week and um, uh, stupidly made the mistake of apologising for some of my sophomoric twittering. Um, and uh, and days later, I had to step down as a an honorary fellow of Buckingham University. I had to resign as a Fulbright commissioner. I had to give up my full time job running an education charity. I had to step down from a a, a free school, a charter school uh, chain that I'd set up. I lost five positions. Um, wow! Uh, 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 all in the space of about you know three months, and uh, uh, my, it didn't get many Christmas cards that Christmas. Let me tell you. So I know what it's like uh, to be cancelled, and uh, and now I've decided uh, to fight back, and I'm setting up uh, uh, the Free Speech Union, which is going to be a mass membership organisation uh, that defends the speech rights of its members. So if you're a member and the mob comes to you, we'll protect you. You know, if, if a mob uh, uh, forms up on Twitter, they'll whip up a counter-mob. If they start a petition calling you to be fired, we'll start a counter-petition. If you do get fired, we'll help you fight back in the court. But it's going to be expensive. We'll help you crowdfund. Uh, you know, the, the enemies of free speech hunt in packs, the defenders of it need to band together too. And that's what I'm hoping to... Well said. I'm uh, I'm interested in your uh, enterprise. That sounds great. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. The fight needs to be joined in a more serious way. I mean, some of the stuff sounds ridiculous, but uh, the consequences are are chilling, not ridiculous. They're very serious. He is Toby Young, associate editor of the Spectator, London associate editor at Quillette. Toby, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. All right, let's close uh, the week out with uh, some previews of the Super Bowl ads. That are, that is so the Super Bowl ads. Uh, many of them have been released. Uh, the controversy surrounding the Mr. Peanut one we talked about a little bit earlier in the week. Um, the idea, of Mr. Right, they previewed Mr. Peanut. He uh, passes away, saving Wesley Snipes and uh, the guy from Veep. And uh, they're going to the, the planters Super Bowl ad is supposed to be his funeral. But 
Then there was criticism of doing a funeral ad on Super Bowl Sunday because that's the day that Kobe Bryant's going to be laid to, laid to rest as, as if one has anything to do with the other. It's just sort of self-indulgent buffoonery. But uh, some other previews of ads. Uh, Microsoft, you know, they, they're using their time, their Super Bowl ad, to pay tribute to Katie Sowers, something more you expect from Nike, I would say. But nonetheless, Katie Sowers, if you haven't been following it, is Katie Sowers is a female. And she's an assistant offensive coordinator for the San Francisco 49ers, so she's a history maker. I remember loving football from day one. I wrote this a long time ago. I don't know how old I was. I hope someday I will be on a real football team. I'm Katie Sowers, offensive assistant coach for the San Francisco 49ers. Bring it up! Bring it up! I always knew I wanted to be a coach. My dad was a coach. I never saw an opportunity in football because I'd never seen a female coach before. Let's run it again! Run it again! Let's people tell me that people aren't ready to have a woman lead, but these guys have been learning from women their whole lives. Moms, grandmas, teachers. Then the shovel comes as a first read. We have all these assumptions about what women do in life and what men do. I'm glad my daughter's old enough to see this and understand how significant it is. I'm not trying to be the best female coach. I'm trying to be the best coach. Exactly. All it takes is one. All it takes is one, and then it opens the door for so many. It's fine. Hey, look, if Jimmy G's fine with her, then I'm fine with her, too. So that's one. Here's And then, you know, you always get the different varieties of ads, some that uh, tug at your heartstrings. This is a good one. Uh, WeatherTech. And the WeatherTech CEO using their spot, the way Microsoft used their spot to, to sort of promote somebody else. But uh, this is a really interesting promotion, not just uh, for an individual, but for a cause. Hi, I'm Scout, and I'm a lucky dog. And it's not just because I found this cool stick or that I was in the WeatherTech commercial on the big game last year. It's that I'm a cancer survivor, had a tumor on my heart, and only a 1% chance of survival. I'm alive thanks to a cutting-edge program at the University of Wisconsin School of Veterinary Medicine. Their research has the potential to save millions of pets' lives. Pets make a difference in your life. You can make a difference in theirs. Donate now at weathertech.com slash donate. Yeah, all right. I like that. I like that. And, uh, yeah, you know, if you are somebody who likes to partake in games of chance, I mean, of course, all the proceeds going to charity, maybe uh, the same... uh, uh, outfit that uh, WeatherTech is promoting there to help pets like Scout uh, take Kansas City and lay the point to a point and a half. Enjoy the Super Bowl. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks for joining us on the Dan Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.